Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to William Saunders, Esquire, Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs and Senior Counsel for Americans United for Life, giving a talk entitled, The Human Right to Religious Liberty, How Does the U.S. Measure Up? This talk is part of the Truth, Conscience, and Religious Freedom Conference at Franciscan University of Steubenville. As Steve mentioned, I am a lawyer, so when I ask, uh, what is, somebody talks about human rights, I want to see what the documents say about human rights. Uh, I want, in other words, it's not just an assertion of I think this and you think that, but what are human rights? Well, the two most important uh, international ones, one called the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which probably a lot of you have heard about, uh, and I'm just going to mention it. I'm not going to talk a lot. I'm not going to talk a lot about it. But it's an extremely important uh, uh, declaration. And, you know, Marianne Glendon, Professor Glendon at Harvard, wrote a book about the, the uh, creation of this declaration. It came out of the Second World War and was issued by the UN General Assembly in 1948. Not that old, but really in the terms of human rights, at least modern human rights discourse and documents, it's the granddaddy of them all. Um, and I think it's an extremely important document because it comes out of a shared historical experience of the, basically the whole world saying enough, enough, enough of the concentration camps, the targeting of civilians in, in various kinds of military campaigns, the slaughter of innocent people, indiscriminate killing, and it asserts, quote, recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So, before we chuckle about some kind of idealism or whatever else, I mean, I, I think that's a very... I think the way to understand it is it's a plea a plea from the world, really, to the, to the world, stop denying the human dignity of people and treating them as if they're worse than animals. Now, it's, the Universal Declaration is the most influential, and it does have a principle on religious liberty. It's very short, so I'll read it to you. It's Article 18. Everyone has the right, is quoting, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience, and religion. The right includes freedom to change his religion or belief, and freedom either alone or in community with others in public or private to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship, and observance. So everybody has the right to religious freedom, includes the right to change your religion and the right to manifest your religion either alone or with others in private and in public. The Universal Declaration is not law, however. Uh, 
technically it's not law. Again, as a lawyer, I'm just being technically, it's a declaration that was issued. It's an aspirational standard. But it's not a binding legal document. The binding legal document, the main one, that intended to make these aspirations of the Universal Declaration into law that bound countries was called the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So I'm going to refer to this many times over the next few minutes, and it usually goes by the acronym. I'll so as I mentioned this during the talk, and ICCP, ICCPR, International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, that's, that's all I'm referring to. It's the main treaty. It was, um, and a treaty, I know we have some lawyers in here and we have other folks maybe who are undergraduates, so what is a treaty? A treaty is just like a contract between individuals. If you sign a contract um, to buy a car or to rent an apartment, the landlord signs it, you sign it, you're bound by it. It's a binding legal document. A treaty is a binding legal document for nations of the world. If they ratify the treaty, they become a party to the treaty. And it's fair to judge the U.S. under the ICCPR because the U.S. ratified it on June the 8th, 1992. Now, what does this treaty have to say about religious freedom? Um, it's a, it's a long, it treats it longer than the Declaration did, so I want to read it to you. As I'm doing these things, I'm going to reflect a little bit on, on some of these aspects, but you, you guys can be turning it over in your head, too, as you hear this, which maybe you've never heard this language from this, you maybe have never heard of this document before, and you've never heard this language. You know, I think things will just start to, you'll say, well, how does this apply to this or that? You start to think about it. So I'll mention a few ways it, it applies, but I'm sure you'll be thinking of many others. So the first part of the, uh, the article, which is also 18, Article 18, of the ICCPR says, everyone shall have freedom of thought, uh, conscience, and religion. This right shall include freedom to have and to adopt a religion or belief of his choice, and freedom either individually or in community, in private and in public, to manifest his religion or belief in worship, observance, practice, and teaching. That sounds very much like Article 18 from this document, and it's almost literally the same. There's a few words of difference, but it's almost literally the same. So the principle from the Universal Declaration is here in the ICCPR. Um, what is very important is uh, something we've mentioned during the conference, which is Section 2 of Article 18, which says, no one shall be subject to coercion which would impair his freedom to have or to adopt a religion or belief. Uh, the kind of expert committee who understand, who uh, guides us on Article 18 
says that it includes the right to change your religion, which remember the Declaration said you have the right to change it. But so you can change your religion. The most important thing, though, is you're not subject to coercion. No one can force you uh, to believe anything or impair your freedom to believe. Now, Section 3 says, quote, I'm quoting it again, freedom to manifest one's religion may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary to protect public safety, order, health, or morals, which in the U.S. we basically call the police power, this general regulatory power, so it may be subject only to such limitations as are prescribed by law and are necessary under the police power or um, to protect the fundamental rights and freedoms of others, end quote. So note that manifesting, the right to manifest your religion is treated differently from having your religion, which was section one. Um, section one says there's the freedom to have or adopt a religion, and a freedom to manifest your religion. It's manifestation of your religion, in other words, worship, observance, worship, which everybody would think of, observance, practice, or teaching, is treated differently from having your religion. It's the manifestation that can be subject to limitations on the basis of the police power, what's called the police power, that public, public health, safety, welfare, or the fundamental rights of others. Now, um, I, I can go into this uh, further later, but I don't think either, those are not significant limits. I'll explain that in a minute, but um, the police power is a general regulatory power, which can't mean that you can willy-nilly infringe a fundamental right that's specified in a document, because if it meant that, then any government assertion having to do with regulations would infringe religious freedom. So it wouldn't make sense that under the general power you could just infringe a fundamental specified right. And I think its reference to fundamental rights of others really means, really means another enumerated right in this document, um, so it doesn't mean new rights that are cooked up out of general provisions. Otherwise, the provision is meaningless because, again, religious freedom is specified in 18 as a, uh, a basic human right that's subject to very few limitations. Just to, um, well, just to sum that up then, your public acts or your, your acting, your manifestation, uh, if there are good reasons, can be restricted, but interior belief could never, cannot be restricted. Um, the, the reasons for the limitations, as I said, logically, have got to be few and they've got to be narrow because otherwise the limits swallow the rule. It'd make no, it would make no sense if, you had, if the limits were just broad categories under which the government could infringe religious, religious freedom. Furthermore, and this is something you hear about, particularly in Europe, I've been in, involved with uh, some advising on some issues in countries like Spain, and sometimes it's asserted 
that if, it's, if a limit or something is passed by a legislature, democratically adopted, then that trumps a right to religious liberty. Uh, and Article 18 says any limits must be prescribed by law. But that can't be so broad as to mean just whatever's passed by a democratic assembly. Because, think about it from the perspective of a minority religious group, which is oftentimes the subject of hostility from majority groups. That would just mean the majority controls the legislature, so they could just pass anything restricting the, the rights of a minority group. So it's necessary but not sufficient condition that these, these whatever the limits are, are prescribed by law. And again, these are limits just on manifestation. Uh, and it's very important to notice that manifestation is not limited to worship. So your right to manifest your religion is not the same as worship. You may be aware that the present, the present administration in the United States has on more than one occasion equated freedom of religion with freedom to worship. Um, in a number of talks, Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State did that. And I think President Obama has done it himself. That's completely contrary to what the ICCPR says. Because freedom to manifest your religion goes far beyond merely worship. As I went over before, it's freedom to worship is included, but it's also observance, practice, um, observance, worship practice, observance, and teaching. So it's much broader than, than merely worship. Um, okay, so that's, that's three sections of Article 18. There's a fourth section, and it says something I think you'll all be interested in to hear this. The state parties to the present convention, uh, covenant, everybody who ratified, all the countries who ratified it, undertake to have respect for the liberty of parents. Somebody before was one of the other speakers was talking about that liberty of parents creates space. The liberty of parents to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions. I, I think that uh, I don't... I think that's pretty surprising for somebody that's not a... This is an international human rights document. It says, part of freedom of religion is that parents have the right to ensure the religious and moral education of their children in conformity with their own convictions. And in fact, the Universal Declaration, the, other, the previous document, the non-binding document, it said parents have a prior right to choose the kind of education that shall be given to their children, end quote. And if you know Catholic social teaching, there's quite a bit of Catholic social teaching about the rights of parents uh, regarding the education of their children. So in fact, as I talk about this, those of you that know Catholic social teaching, there's a lot of echoes uh, or reverberations or echoes back and forth between Catholic social teaching and human rights standards. And I think that Catholics should be 
absolutely unapologetically energized by this fact. I mean, human rights are usually used by people who want to promote, or often used by people who want to promote the political agenda of the, the left, of the political left. The fact is, that's a misunderstanding of what human rights are. What the human, it's, a mis, it's a misrepresentation of what the human rights documents say. Human rights, properly understood, reflect Catholic, or, or very, very similar to Catholic social teaching. I did a paper for a conference that Steve Crayson had, uh, and uh, I ended up titling it Catholic Social Teaching and Human, human Rights Standards a convergent, that was on the rights of parents, on the rights of parents, a convergence, because there's a lot of similarity. So, you know, if you're a Catholic and you're in the public square and somebody wants to talk to you about human rights, great, great. Don't be intimidated by that. Don't let them define this as the political agenda of the left. The documents don't reflect that. And, in fact, the documents are very similar to what you will have, would have learned as a Catholic, that Catholic social teaching teaches you. So to summarize just this Article 18, it contains several general principles. Religious freedom is a basic human right. Religious, number one. Number two, religious belief may not be coerced. Number three, the right to manifest one's religious beliefs may be restricted in a few circumstances. And parents have a prior right to choose the religious education of their children. Now, in addition to Article 18, there are a few other articles in this treaty that talk about religious freedom. In particular, it's important to, know, to notice, I want to mention Article 4. Now, Article 4 of this treaty generally says, I mean, there, this, is a, this is a treaty that covers all kinds of rights, you know, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of press, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom not to be, or the right to be free of torture, etc., etc., etc. It has a number of these art, uh, rights in here. So Article 4 says, in the time of an emergency that threatens the uh, future of the nation, uh, uh, the health, the existence of the nation, a state can, can limit or even abrogate the rights in the treaty because you know, it's an emergency situation. The life of the nation is at stake. Except it can't do it with religious freedom and one or two other rights. This is called, it doesn't, it's a non-derogation. You can't limit religious freedom, even in a time of national emergency that threatens the future of the nation, that alone simply makes the point that religious freedom is, in a sense, most fundamental or more fundamental because other rights can be limited. Religious freedom can't be. So again, this is a very broad right to religious freedom. It can't even be limited when the life of the nation is at stake. Um, now, every human rights uh, treaty establishes a committee. 
And it was one of these committees, somebody I think mentioned in the question period, how about the, com the committee that criticized the Holy See recently about children? That was, that was a committee under a different treaty called the Convention on the Rights of the Child. But every one of these treaties establishes a committee of experts. And the committee of experts, does, although it's not like a court, so it doesn't make final binding interpretations of the language, it, it is supposed to offer advice and guidance to states as they implement the provisions of the treaty. So they're kind of a, an advisory body to a nation that has ratified a treaty. Uh, this, tre this treaty established such as committee, and they have a general guidance on uh, religious freedom, which is called Comment 22, but I can't go into it in much depth, but I do want to mention it just to, to uh, show you that some of the things this committee has said, which is composed of experts who are elected from the countries who, who've ratified the treaty, um, that they, they also, I mean, in other words, this, this idea of the broad freedom of, of religious freedom that I'm telling you is not just my imagination. I mean, here are the people whose job it is to help guide states to ratify. What the things I've said before they, they agree with, and they say a few other things I'll quote for you. Uh, number one, quote, restrictions, any restrictions on religious freedom may not be imposed for discriminatory purposes or applied in a discriminatory manner, end quote. So if, you know, if some body and some, some government body in some state is kicking around Catholics in a way that, you know, you can, you know, sometimes you have the smoking gun and they say something about that. Well, that violates the principles of this treaty. Second of all, quote, the freedom to manifest religion encompasses a broad range of acts. The observance and practice of religion may include not only ceremonial acts, but also customs. In addition, the practice and teaching of religion includes acts integral to the conduct by religious groups of their basic affairs, such as freedom to choose their religious leaders, priests and teachers, the freedom to establish seminaries or religious schools, and the freedom to prepare and distribute religious texts." Uh, end quote. Thus, in the U.S. context, the freedom to manifest your religion is not to be restrictively understood or applied by public authorities. In particular, the right to manifest includes the right, as we, I just said, to choose leaders. Now, how's the U.S. doing on that, the right of religious bodies to choose leaders? Well, there have been some cases uh, recently in the Supreme Court, uh, which you have probably heard of. Um, for instance, in the Hosanna-Tabor case, of a couple of years ago, it seems like the right to choose leaders or ministers was upheld by a unanimous Supreme Court. Uh, but, uh, again, not speaking so much as a technical lawyer, but on a more general uh, level, that same right was seemed to be undermined or very narrowly understood. And remember, you're not supposed to understand this narrowly. You're supposed to understand it broadly, but very narrowly understood by the Supreme Court in the uh, Martinez case, which Bob Destro mentioned, which permitted uh, a university to deny 
benefits that it gave to every other group to an evangelical group because the evangelical group imposed restrictions on who could be its leaders. The Supreme Court upheld that. So that seems to undermine the right in Article 18, whereas the Hosanna-Tabor case seems to recognize the right and uphold it. So there's certainly, I think, a tension uh, between these cases and the Supreme Court um, that implicates whether the U.S. is complying with Article 18.3, which says there shall, you know, the right to manifest shall not be limited except in a few cases. Third, um, the committee said the following. So I'm giving you some of the things they said and some of my reflections on what they said. So quoting the committee again, paragraph 3 of Article 18, which permits certain limitations, is to be strictly interpreted. Restrictions are not allowed on ground, grounds not specified there, even if limitations would be allowed on other rights protected in the convention. Limitations must be directly related and proportionate to the specific need on which they were predicated. End quote. So how might this apply in the U.S.? Well, for instance, we could certainly ask whether the limitations that are being forced upon Catholics and others individually and institutionally under the HHS mandate are, quote, directly related and proportionate to the needs, end quote, to the needs the U.S. government has specified. The strict scrutiny standard, which has been mentioned under RIFRA, which requires if a government uh, infringement is substantial, that it has to be uh, due to a compelling reason and be least restrictive means, that to me is, is similar enough to the directly related and proportionate that probably if that standard is the U.S. standard, then that, that complies with it. But I have to say that, in my opinion anyway, the, the standard from the Supreme Court case that prompted RIFRA, which was Employment Division v. Smith, which said that even if there was a substantial restriction on religious liberty, it was, it was permissible if it, were, it was pursuant to a law that was neutral and of general applicability. I don't think that satisfies the requirement of Article 18. Fourth of all, quoting the, um, quoting the committee, persons already subject to certain legitimate constraints such as prisoners continue to enjoy their rights to manifest their religion to the fullest extent compatible with, their, with their, uh, the nature of their constraint, end quote. So again, I think uh, Jerry Bradley mentioned this, but there are a lot of cases in the U.S. litigating, currently litigating prisoners' rights, and the Supreme Court has just granted cert in one of those cases. Um, but the, the international standard recognizes that prisoners have religious freedom rights, but they, you have to balance it against the nature of their constraint. And also, a lot of these, uh, or some of these claims anyway, are asserted pursuant to a federal statute called the Religious Land Use and Institutionalized Persons Act. So arguably, the existence of this law shows that the United States is trying to comply with 18 by giving prisoners the opportunity to protect religious rights. So from this quick review of international standards, what can we conclude? Um, it is obvious that religious freedom under international human rights standards is considered as a good, uh, in the words of Robbie George, a basic good. 
It is something that's good for society, it's good for the individual, and it's a fundamental good. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, the limitations on it, any limitations are supposed to be few and strictly interpreted, whereas the freedom to have and manifest the religion is supposed to be understood broadly, and religious freedom protections can't be relaxed significant, significantly, even in a time of dire national uh, emergency. So thus, uh, you know, you can think of different examples, and particular ones might not be in conformity with the treaty. But I also want to make the point that if all these limitations together uh, make society or the public square hostile to religious expression, I think that violates the treaty. Um, again, one of the comments from the committee says that if a set of beliefs is treated as official ideology in practice, this shall not result in any impairment of the freedom under Article 18, um, nor in any discrimination against persons who do not accept the official ideology. So to the extent that secularism is being treated as, uh, or naked public square is treated as an ideology, I think that violates this treaty. Now, you'll be, I'm sure, thinking, well, this is kind of a general discussion, uh, and you're right, because human rights standards can guide us on principle, but simply stating a standard doesn't resolve a particular issue any more than stating the First Amendment resolves the question of uh, whether something is an establishment of religion or violates free exercise. Does the length of a prisoner's beard, does that implicate religious interest? Well, if he's a Muslim, as was mentioned, and he, uh, and this is the dictates of his religion, and his question is, you know, one inch or, or a little, or, you know, it's not like a beard that in some way uh, is so long he can't walk without tripping on it, but his question is, look, seems to me there's a very strong case that he has religious freedom uh, right to do that. But anyway, our, so these arguments require sometimes a court to sort the issues and the arguments and apply the standards, and unfortunately there is no international court, or probably fortunately, but anyway, there is no international court that can do that. So, the only, so in substitution for that, I let me mention some of these international reports to give us a sense of how the U.S. is doing. So part one of my paper, I want to talk about these international standards, how good they are, but you know, we don't have a court that applies these. Let's take a comparative perspective in part two here of my talk. So there are many organizations that, uh, that evaluate religious freedom around the world. Now when I got interested and was working on the Sudan uh, back, and Jerry Bradley with me, uh, back in um, around the late 1990s, there weren't many reports. I mean, there was a few, but it was as a consequence, really, of that whole struggle that now you have two government agencies that report on religious freedom around the world in the United States. Um, one is the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which Professor George is the chairman of. Now, I'll get to that in a minute, but first I'll mention a, a much smaller group in Richmond, Virginia, called the First Amendment Center, it issues an annual report, and it, the name of the annual report is Minority Religious Communities at Risk. 
and it applies the standards that we've been discussing. But it has a particular focus on minority religious groups, minority religions. This echoes a theme from the, uh, again, the ICCPR committee says, quote, the committee views with concern any tendency to discriminate against any religion for any reason, including religious minorities that may be subject to hostility on the part of a predominant religious community, end quote. Minority religious rights are also directly protected in this treaty in Article 27, which says, in those states in which religious minorities exist, persons belonging to such minorities shall not be denied the right in community with others of their group to profess and practice their, their own religion, end quote. In, in 2011, the First Amendment Free uh, Center issued their report on minority religious communities, and it identified seven communities. Uh, I'll just mention very briefly, the Jews of Venezuela, the Muslims of Darfur, the Jehovah's Witnesses of Eritrea, the Orthodox Christians of Turkey, the Nazarene Christians of Somalia, the Sabian Mandians of Iraq, and the Jews of the Arab world. Now, the, the Sabian Mandians are really parenthetically, those who kind of follow John the Baptist without Jesus. Uh, and if you know the New Testament, there are a number of places where they, they talk about people who knew the baptism of John, but not of the Holy Spirit. Anyway, these people have a ritual which they, they wash every morning, and they have to wash in a particular river that uh, is in Iraq. And there's only about 5,000 of them left. So for these seven groups... The report concluded that mo quote, most will cease to exist or to be capable of functioning as distinct religious communities before the end of the next decade. So by before the end of the 2020s. End quote. So in other words, these groups are probably going to disappear. And this is obviously the most severe kind of denial of religious freedom, the elimination of the religion entirely. The other report I want to mention is the one I said from the U.S. Commission where Robert George is the, uh, the chairman. It issues a regular report on religious freedom around the world. It's a uh, commission of the U.S. government. Um, and its most recent report, which came out a couple months ago, um, I want to quote from it. The first section of this report highlights countries where the com which the commission designates as Tier 1. Tier 1 countries are those that the Commission designates as countries of particular concern because of their government's engagement in or toleration of severe violations of religious freedom. The Tier 1 countries in this report, just again, to say them briefly, Burma, China, Egypt, Eritrea, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Vietnam. So that's 12 or so countries. What religious, particularly severe violations of religious freedom are these governments engaged in? Torture, killing, imprisonment, secret detention, banning of uh, meetings for the religious group, 
severe censorship of publications, failure of the authorities to protect uh, individuals and communities from mob violence, arbitrary arrests, blasphemy laws, and anti-conversion laws. That's Tier 1. In addition to Tier 1, the Commission identified Tier 2 countries where to situations are accelerating. They're not as bad as Tier 1, but they're accelerating. The denial of religious freedom is increasing. There are uh, about eight countries of that, on that list. Afghanistan, Azerbaijan, Cuba, India, Indonesia, Kazakhstan, Laos, and Russia. So when you add Tier 1 and Tier 2 together, you have 23 countries in which governments either already engage in or in, engage in severe restrictions of religious freedom or in which those situations are rapidly deteriorating and seems to be moving in a fa fast in that direction. Obviously, the situation in the U.S. is, is infinitely better. And um, no matter which of those reports you compare it to. And that's important because we need perspective on this. I mean, the situation here could be much, much, much worse. The torture, the killings, the arbitrary uh, imprisonment really don't occur here. Nonetheless, as we've heard through this entire conference, the situation in the U.S. is far from perfect. And there's a third report I want to mention which really establishes that, I think. It's from the Pew Forum, P-E-W, Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life. And it issues a report on religious freedom around the world. And it, it, it attempts, as it says, to devise a battery of quantifiable objective measures, end quote, by which it can measure religious freedom violations and compare them. It measured uh, restrictions in all the countries of the world using two indexes, one on government restrictions and one on social hostilities. And the government restrictions <clears throat> have 20 specific things such as banning faiths, prohibiting conversions, limiting preaching, giving preferential treatment to some groups. The social hostility index includes specific things as well, including these incidents of mob violence. So, now, so it's trying to quantify, you know, measure and compare the situation around the world. So what's the situation around the world? Before I get to the U.S., we've got to put it in context. And the context is that um, restrictions, quoting, restrictions on religion rose in each of the five major regions of the world. This is over the last uh, four or five years when they've started measuring. So restrictions rose uh, res because some of the most restrictive countries, still, I'm still quoting, are very populous. Three quarters of the world's seven billion people live in countries with high government restrictions or high social hostilities. None of those is the United States. So, but... The report has a special section on the United States. And it found the United States was one of only 16 countries where on both of those index, government restrictions and social hostilities, religious freedom uh, limitations were growing. This was the first time 
uh, quoting the report, that the scores for the United States increased on both indexes during the period. So on both indexes, the United, on government restrictions and social hostilities as measured by the Pew Forum, religious limitations or hostility, restrictions on religion are growing in the United States. They have a special section on it. So, the situation in the U.S. is worsening in a way that's objectively measured and it's occurring at a faster rate than all but uh, 16, uh, 15 other countries. Obviously not a very encouraging situation for us. So, what conclusions uh, can, I, can we draw from this? Um, first, at the level of international, uh, of general standards, those in the U.S. and those under human rights law are, are very similar. I think some of my discussion for the lawyers will echo on slightly different language the kind of standards you're aware of uh, in US, on U.S. issues. Um, both protect religious freedom as an enumerated right in a fundamental legal documents, but you can't take too much comfort for that because while the non-derogation provision that I mentioned of the ICCPR and the actual language of the ICCPR and the comments of the, human, uh, the ICCPR committee, which I just read to all of you, ensure that religion is broadly understood and protected and that limitations are quite literally quite limited, it's not clear that this parallels the views of most Americans. As the Pew Report indicated, restrictions are growing and perhaps as a consequence or perhaps as a cause, so is hot social hostility to religion. One can only needs to think of the debates around same-sex marriage to confirm it. Um, there was an op-ed in the Washington Post, which I read just a week ago, and it, 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 it uh, compared Uganda to Arizona, if you know the specifics of those, and, and said they were both, you know, that, that the, the suggestion was anybody who, who supported uh, traditional marriage or whatever was a religious bigot. Um, and surely that contributes to growing social hostility. And as I mentioned, the government itself, our current administration, has spoken of religious freedom as equivalent to freedom to worship. And such a view is much, much, much narrower than that protected under the ICCPR, um, where any uh, limits placed on manifestation of religion have to be very narrow. The thing to remember is the bias the bias of these documents is in favor, in favor of religious practice and religious uh, and freedom of religion, not against it, in favor of it. So, you know, to be treated very broadly, the limits to be very limited, no derogation in the time of warfare. I mean, uh, national emergency, not even warfare. Uh, now, one thing I'd just throw out for you to think about, as I mentioned under Article 27, re minority religious groups are guaranteed the right to uh, practice their religion and to enjoy their own culture with 
in community with others? Is it useful to be, begin thinking of Catholics in the United States or uh, other religious Americans uh, as one of those groups, in the words of that First Amendment, First Freedom Center's report, as a minority religious community at risk? When we, if God you know, grant we don't, but if we get to that point, at least there's an international human rights standard that recognizes we have a right to, to profess and practice our religion with others in community. Special protection. And the Catholics are at most, what, a quarter of the population. Um, so that's the first thing. The international standards, the domestic standards are similar, but if anything, the religion, I would say, if anything, international standards are even stronger. The bias, clear bias in favor of, of uh, religious freedom. The second conclusion I want to draw is that these international guarantees offer a second independent ground for re recognizing religious liberty rights. And I think that's very important because they provide advocates for religious freedom either in the courts or in the media or in society itself an additional powerful argument for a broad understanding of and protection for religious liberty. As such, they may help to remind Americans that religious liberty is a basic human right and as such, it should be recognized, welcomed, and guaranteed by both society and the state. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.